Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 23 of the History, Books, and Wine podcast. I'm your host this week, Lori Ann Bailey. I'm the National Reader's Choice and Holt Medallion award-winning author who writes Scottish historicals with hot Highland heroes and spunky independent lasses finding their perfect matches in the Scottish Highlands. Today, I'm drinking from my first ever Boda box. It's a 2019 Cabernet Sauvignon, and the side of the box says, Taste the adventure. Aromas of black cherry and bright red currant are balanced by hints of cedar and vanilla. In Boda's enchanting Cabernet, the lively finish is marked by notes of ripe cherry, plum, and vanilla. Smooth, yet medium-bodied, Relish this with robust favorites like a classic chili or a juicy New York strip and a movie on the sofa. Honestly, when I opened this box, I opened it last week. That's good because it's equivalent to four bottles of wine and I'm really enjoying it. But I think I'm going to reserve purchasing these boxes for when I have guests over or when I'm going somewhere where there's going to be a lot of people. The problem that I have with this box is I keep refilling my glass and I have no concept of how much I've actually drank. Like normally when I open a bottle, I can look at it and say, oh, I've had half the bottle. That's enough. With the Boda box, there's no way to tell how much you've had. So it's a great wine. I recommend it for when you're having a large gathering. I'm taking a sip right now. Yummy. And now I'm going to move on to the history of jewelry. And what might happen here is I'm either going to move really quickly or this show is going to be longer than normal because there was so much information about jewelry. And I left a bunch out and this is still on the long side. So hopefully I don't talk too fast and hopefully this doesn't get too long. But I'm going to start off going way back with something very interesting I learned in my research. There's a site in Krapina, Croatia, where some eagle's talons were found. And recently, a professor took a closer look at these talons and noticed numerous cut marks that indicated that they had been used for jewelry. An international team was assembled, and they went out there to check and confirmed the professor's theory. The crazy thing about this is that it's changed the perception of the way we think of people that we used to think of as savage brutes, and that's the Neanderthals. So this discovery shows that they had a form of symbolic thinking in their lives, and it also indicates that the need for ornaments predates the modern man, since these pieces are dated to have been made 100 35,000 years ago. Crazy, huh? Next, there is a site in Israel, 
and it's called the Skull Cave, and it's spelled S-K-H-U-L. So maybe I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but I think Skull Cave makes it sound really cool. Anyway, some researchers found beads made from shells of a sea snail called Narcissorius, or at least that's how I'm going to pronounce it. These beads are the first known jewelry made by modern man, and they date to 110,000 years ago. Similar beadwork was also found on the African continent, with the oldest examples found in Morocco, and they date back about 80,000 years. And not too far from that, in a cave on the Cape shoreline in South Africa, there were some found that are around 75,000 years old. But before these discoveries, it was thought that the oldest personal ornament ever was found in the site of the Twilight Cave. All these crazy caves, but this cave is in Kenya, and the beads there were made from drilled ostrich egg shells, and they were tied on a string to be worn around the neck. There has also been a stone bracelet found in Siberia. The interesting thing about it is it was found on skeletal remains in the area that dates back to 40,000 years. But some scientists believed that it was actually made by Dennis Oven people. So whoever was wearing it 40,000 years ago found it somewhere else, and the Denisovan people are a species of human that predate the Neanderthals. Another interesting thing that I found is one of the first cultures to have developed goldsmithing, and that was the Varna civilization. It was developed in eastern Bulgaria in an area that's near the Black Sea, and that's because it's rich with fertile soil and lakes. And with the abundant waterways, they were able to trade, and goldsmiths had the opportunity to develop their trade. And the really cool thing about this is that there were remains found on the site of the necropolis in which Varnians interred their dead and where the graves were dated to as early as 4500 BC. More than 290 graves have been discovered, well, that's just to date, and 43 of them contained syntaphs, which are grave gifts. Some of those are with no corporeal remains, so it's just the jewelry. But the most interesting thing about this is uh, one of the burial pits that they found contained more gold in the burial pit than the entire world for that period of time. I think that probably says a lot about the Varna civilization. They were very into their jewelry. Other areas at that site include necklaces, bracelets, and rings made of gold. My next interesting fact about really early jewelry was Egypt, even though they were famous for their gold-capped pyramids and death masks, Egyptian jewelry dates back to about 5,000 years ago, and it was primarily made of silver and uh, stained glass. And it was silver because it was in abundance, easy for them to develop. Gold jewelry encrusted with gemstones dates back as far as the Mesopotamian culture around 2000 B.C. So closing out my 
ancient jewelry presentation, we have to say that man has always loved to be adorned in jewels. And this brings us to the definition of jewelry, which is ornamental pieces, such as rings, necklaces, earrings, and bracelets that are made of materials which may or may not be precious, such as gold, silver, glass, and plastic, are often set with genuine or imitation gems and are worn for personal adornment. The word jewelry is an anglicized form of the Latin word jocal, which means plaything. And I like that because, you know, there's always times that I will reach up and play with my necklace or thumb my earrings. So I can see that. It's pretty uh, interesting to know where that comes from. But jewelry has not always been just for adornment. Brooches and pins help secure clothing. Others, like a cross or a Jewish star, associate one with a particular religion. And wedding rings are the symbol of a promise between two people. Jewelry can also be worn to ward off evil. Some people have paid dowries with jewelry. Beads were also created in the 16th to 20th century to be used as currency for trading goods. And something really awful that I learned is that sometimes these beads were used for uh, selling slaves. And these became known as trade beads and sometimes slave beads. So that is the darker side of jewelry. Some of the earliest traces of jewelry can be found in civilizations that bloomed in the Mediterranean and what is now called Iran. These were usually simple stone ambulance and seals. Many carried spiritual meanings with stars and floral designs. Jewelry was offered to the gods and was used to dress up statues in the royal tombs of ancient Sumner, dating back to 3000 BC, mummies were found encrusted with headdresses, necklaces, earrings, rings, crowns, and pens. And it looks like I am still on the ancient Egyptians because here it says they also wore amulets and talismans. And the Egyptians used some symbols to show territorial pride. Like the vulture represented Nekhebet, patron of Upper Egypt, and the cobra stood for Lower Egypt. The royal jewelers used gold, silver, turquoise, chalcedony, amethyst, and lapis lazuli. The Egyptians believed strongly that color reflects aspects of your personalities, and as a result, color symbolism was important to ancient Egyptians. Yellow and gold were associated with the sun and were always used in crowns and ornaments for the pharaoh and his priests. A green stone was put in the mouths of the pharaohs to restore speech in the other world. A red heart amulet was believed to preserve the soul. The golden ujat provided health and protection. Another interesting thing is that a 4,000-year-old pearl and gold earring, the oldest ever found, came from Bahrain, which is a flat island in the Persian Gulf. And I definitely wanted to throw something in about China in this podcast, so 
since it is one of the oldest civilizations in the world. And due to the culture's tradition of burying a person's wealth with their bodies, many pieces have been beautifully preserved over time. In China, jade is considered a spiritual stone, giving wearers a link to the next world and their ancestors. So I'm wondering at night, now that I've got one of those little jade rollers to massage my face, if I'm connecting with my ancestors doing that. So I like that thought. Pendants, bracelets, and hair pieces of jade are carved into beautiful designs of animals and symbols. The talismans were worn to protect the wearer, as well as provide a symbol of their personal status. Jade itself was considered a more precious resource than precious metals, with different colors of jade symbolizing different levels of wealth and status. The Greeks were prolific writers and they often talked about jewelry and its impact on their day-to-day lives. As far back as 1200 BC, Greek jewelry was rich and varied and reflected the prosperity of the society. At first, the Greeks copied Eastern motifs but then later developed their own style of following their beliefs in the gods and symbols. Greek jewelry included crowns, earrings, bracelets, rings, hairpins, necklaces, and brooches. Greek women sometimes wore necklaces with 75 or more dangling miniature vases. So not only are you kind of tinkling around when you walk, that that stuff's probably heavy by the Roman era. Most gemstones that we use today had already been discovered. They were really into their myth and magic and gemstones were treated with respect. They also had a second purpose. The Roman women would wear hairpins that were long enough to be used in self-defense. And I really like that idea. Pretty cool, huh? The Romans also loved the cameo and cherished it for its beauty. Bracelets for the wrist and upper arms, as well as necklaces, became popular, as did jewelry made from coins. And I love hearing that because I have a necklace that's a coin necklace, and it's a, a coin that my dad gave me once, and it's one of my favorite pieces of jewelry. From the 12th to 15th centuries, very few peasants wore jewelry, except sometimes a brooch or a hat pin. In the Middle Ages, the royal family and churches frowned upon commoners wearing jewelry, or trying to copy their clothes or manners. The nobility considered this a special privilege and only for them to enjoy. To enforce this idea, sumptuary laws were initiated. These laws were intended to curb opulence and promote thrift by regulating what people were allowed to wear. Rings that were worn carried a meaning and a purpose. And there were four main categories. Number one, ecclesiastical rings. These were rings worn by clergy and laymen as sacred emblems. Number two, curative rings. These are rings that are meant to cure ailments and diseases. And I really wish I could have found more on this. I tried. I tried several searches and couldn't find any more on it. But my best guess is with trade open during the Crusades, Maybe chakra rings and jewelry were introduced from the East, but that's purely a guess. And anyway, if you guys ever learn something about curative rings, let me know because I'm absolutely curious about these. 
Number three is rings of romance, which would include the wedding ring. And at that time, it was to be worn on the left second finger because of its closeness to the heart. Number four, gadget rings. And this includes brass knuckles, compass rings, and pipe stuffers. I'm not quite sure what pipe stuffers are, but I think that's pretty funny. And you know what? If I were a commoner in those days, if I could get away with wearing brass knuckles as my only form of jewelry and I didn't have those really long hat pins to protect myself, who knows? Maybe I would have gone with it. And now more about wedding rings. The first recorded evidence of what we would consider the forerunner of the modern custom of exchanging rings is found in ancient Egyptian scrolls dating back more than 3,000 years. So that I thought was really cool that there is actually written down information about this. And the writings depict couples presenting each other with braided rings, and they were usually fashioned from hemp or reeds. And as you can guess, these materials did not last very long. So I'm hoping that their relationships last longer. And if they did, these rings were typically replaced by a bone or ivory or leather. The more expensive the material, the more love was being shown. The value of the ring also demonstrated the net worth of the giver. The translation of the hieroglyphics show that Egyptians believe that the rings symbolized undying commitment and eternal love between the couple because the circle has no beginning or end. And I thought that was really cool because I've heard that saying before. Who knew it comes from hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt? Rome also has a history with wedding rings and the groom would present his bride with an iron ring, which is the origin of today's metal wedding bands. The durable metal symbolized strength and permanence. It is believed that the Romans were the first to have their rings engraved. And the Romans, as well as the Greeks, placed the ring on the fourth finger of the left hand because they believed that the finger contained the vena amoris, or the vein of love, which goes back to earlier where I said it's closest to the heart. An interesting fact, though, is that there are several countries in Europe that prefer to wear rings on the right hand. Some of those countries are... Denmark, Norway, Russia, Poland, Bulgaria, Portugal, Spain, and Greece. There is also a theory that some people wear the ring on the left finger because it it can be less damaged since the majority of people are right-handed. Now on to the 16th and 17th centuries, where gimel rings were popular. This is a ring that's composed of two interlocking parts. And after a couple got engaged, the future bride would take one part and the groom would take one part. And when they got married, they would connect them back together and the bride would wear them. And in the Renaissance, there were some highly ornate sterling silver posy rings. And I had to look these up because I didn't know what they were. And they are just rings that have an engraved message on the inside. So that's really nice for wedding bands. And moving on to Puritan colonial America, a husband would give his wife a thimble because jewelry was seen as frivolous. Women would often remove the top of the thimble, creating a ring. In addition to traditional wedding bands, 
Some religions and cultures encourage the exchange of additional rings, including the Hindu Bichaya toe ring and the Iron Bagel of West Bengal. I found something that was really cool, but also really creepy at the same time. There was a phase where people wore jewelry called a lover's eye. And what it does is it sends a message about the wearer, but sometimes the message is meant to be a secret one. The practice of giving a lover's eye to one's sweetheart began in the 18th century with George, Prince of Wales, who would one day become King George IV. In 1784, he met and fell in love with Mrs. Maria Fitzherbert, a twice-widowed Catholic. So, oh my goodness, she was way off limits. To cool his ardor, Maria relocated to France, but the prince wouldn't give up. In November 1785, he sent her a token of his love, a miniature portrait of his eye. In December, they were secretly married despite a British law that prohibited Anglican royalty from marrying Catholics. A year into the marriage, the prince gifted Maria with another miniature eye portrait, and she returned the favor with one of her own. The marriage was eventually declared illegal, and George married his first cousin, Caroline of Brunswick. And then, wearing a lover's eye became a declaration that one was having an affair. I don't know why you would publicize that. I don't know if that's just rumor or what, but I'm thinking if you have an affair, you don't want your significant other to know. The lover's eye had a very different meaning under Queen Victoria. It was no longer a symbol of illicit romance, but an object of affection. Queen Victoria commissioned these eye miniatures of her children, friends, and relatives' eyes, and aristocratic society imitated the monarch's example. The gems framing a lover's eye had symbolic import as well. Garnets meant friendship. Pearls represented tears, purity, or humility. Coral warded off the evil eye. So when you're looking at your lover's eye and it's creeping you out, if you've got coral on it, it's still good because that lover's eye is not going to turn into an evil eye. I'm sorry, I just had to do that. I'm just laughing at myself. And diamonds showed the wealth of the giver. And now I'm having a sip of wine. From the 16th to the early 20th centuries, people wore mourning jewelry to commemorate their dead loved ones. Mourning jewelry could be lockets, rings, and brooches. Sometimes they would have locks of the decedent's hair braided into them. And people sometimes also made bracelets with this braided hair. And I read in one place that people had to be wary of who they chose to pleat their loved one's hair because some companies would replace damaged or difficult to manipulate hair with a stranger's hair or even horse's hair. So it was very important that you made sure you were dealing with a reparable hair braider Mourning pieces were typically inlaid with black enamel, but white was sometimes used for a woman who died unmarried and a virgin. Pearls would indicate the loss of a child. Different colors represented different stages of grief. If you were observing traditional Victorian public mourning time, the necklace or ring could incorporate various colors that would match the changing period of mourning. It is permissible to wear mourning jewelry with other jewels 
However, if you are following the strict Victorian mourning procedure, mourning jewelry should only be worn with other mourning jewelry for the first two to three years of deep mourning. Eventually, incorporating pictures of the dearly departed became popular. Queen Victoria, whose epic sadness over the loss of her husband, Prince Albert, popularized the tradition, and she wore her husband's mourning ring for the rest of her life. On ending this, I want to say I found this really awesome website for this guy who collects mourning jewelry, and it's really fascinating and worth taking a look at. His website is called The Art of Mourning, and I will put that link in the show notes. This week, my family and I returned from a trip down south to see my parents and brothers. And on the way there and back, while the kids have on headphones in the back, my husband and I usually turn on an audiobook. And in the past, we've had really amazing luck with the Sydney Sheldon books. And we're almost done with this one. It's called Sydney Sheldon's The Tides of Memory. When I was thinking about this podcast, I thought this book is good, but it just doesn't have the magic that that first Sidney Sheldon book that we listened to does. And come to find out, it is not written by Sidney Sheldon. So I'm going to read the description from Overdrive, which is the app that I used from the library to download this book. And then I'm going to read you the Amazon description, which totally floored me. And I feel absolutely, although I'm enjoying the book, I feel deceived because it's not by who I thought it was by. So here is the overdrive description. An addictive edge of your seat thriller filled with the hallmark elements that made New York Times bestselling author Sidney Sheldon the master of storytelling game, an international legend. Shocking twist, money, power, and betrayal involving an influential family and the beautiful and formidable woman at its center whose dark secrets can destroy them all. The conservative party's newest superstar, Alexia DeVere, has worked hard to realize her political ambitions. The brilliant and ruthless wife of wealthy aristocrat Teddy DeVere Alexia relishes her power and the control it gives her to shape and destroy lives. Yet, success has always demanded sacrifice. Her daughter, Roxy, a bitter young woman confined to a wheelchair after a failed suicide attempt, blames Alexia for ruining her life. Alexia's dashing son, Michael, is risking the family's good name to jumpstart his entrepreneurial dreams. Thankfully, Alexia has Teddy, her devoted husband who will stop at nothing to protect her. But beneath Alexia DeVere's gilded life and formidable facade lies secrets that are ugly, dirty, and deadly. When long-buried mistakes of her youth begin to resurface, old hatreds are rekindled, and Alexia finds herself on the brink of losing everything, her power, her family, and even her own life. Now, the woman who rose so high is on the brink of a perilous fall. For when the tides of memory rise, the only thing that might save her is the truth. All right, so that was the overdrive description that says nothing about someone else writing this book. This is the description from Amazon. New York Times bestselling author Tilly Bagshaw, who delivered the late beloved author's brilliance in Sidney Sheldon's After the Darkness, 
is back with a stunning tale of duplicity and vengeance in Sidney Sheldon's The Tides of Memory. The members of a formidable and captivating Devere family of London live enviable lives in the world's most powerful and desirable places, from London's poshest neighborhoods to influential bedrooms. But when old secrets begin to unravel and threaten everything the Deveres have worked for, the ramifications are deadly. Bagshaw upholds Sheldon's legacy with a blistering story of revenge, passion, and betrayal in a book that is quintessential Sheldon. So this book is good and I recommend it, but go into it knowing you're not getting a book written by Sidney Sheldon. And I will include the link for that in the show notes and it will be the Amazon link. So you'll have the correct description, even though the other description gives you more detail. The book of mine that I'm going to talk about this week is Highland Redemption, book two in the Highland Pride series. And the reason I'm recommending this book is because my hero has bought my heroine a gimmel ring. So that makes an appearance in here and it uh, goes along with today's show. So here is a little blurb about Highland Redemption. While spying for Clan Cameron, Brody Cameron rescues a lass, only to realize it's Skye, the woman who'd broken his heart. He needs to get her to her uncle as quickly as possible to keep her safe. But every minute he's distracted from his mission brings the clans that much closer to war. And having beautiful sky anywhere near him is dangerous because the price on his head is higher than the one on hers. Upon being rescued from kidnappers, Skye finds herself staring into the eyes of the man she once loved, Brody Cameron. She's grateful to be freed, but has no idea how she'll resist the lad who has become a bra man, especially because she's promised to another in a political marriage forged to strengthen the royalist clans against the Covenanters who plot to turn Scotland upside down. I'll also include a link in the show notes for that book. And I have a reader question from Anna this week, and her question is, why did you choose to write about Scotland? This has to be one of the questions I am asked the most frequently, and I have a couple reasons. Number one, I read a lot of Scottish historical romance, and it's what I love and what I enjoy. And the other reason would be that uh, my husband and I lived in London for a little while, and while we were there, we took a trip to Edinburgh, and I was just fascinated with Scotland. And since then, it's always held a piece of my heart, and that's why I write Scottish historicals. Oh, plus, it may be in my genetics. I think you've heard me talk in the past, if you've listened to other shows, that I am a descendant of King Robert the Bruce, and I do have some ties to the Wallace family from um, William Wallace, who is was a guardian of Scotland, and most people know him as Braveheart. And now I have a reader question, and first I'm going to start off by saying that I never take off my wedding ring, but the other piece of jewelry that I can't live without is earrings. I feel completely undressed if I go outside without them. So my question to you guys is what is your favorite piece of jewelry and why? You can email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Who knows? Maybe we'll discuss it on the next Happy Hour podcast where we're talking about all things historical accessories. So 
email us and let us know if you have any kind of questions. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Please join us next week, July 25th, as Eliza Knight gives us some interesting historical facts about shoes. And then on August 1st, we're going to have our next happy hour where we'll be chatting about, like I just said, all things accessories. So purses, pins, and more. Anything uh, accessory-wise that we can think of that we haven't talked about yet. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com where we will have the show notes for today's episode. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. History, Books, and Wine can also be found on Spotify. And if you say, Alexa, play History, Books, and Wine podcast, she'll play the most recent episode. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great day.